Thank you so much. Good morning. What we're going to do now is to connect last week's teaching to this week's teaching with regard to the way in which the wisdom from above is in conflict with the wisdom from below. Last week's teaching in James chapter 3, verse 13 through 18, shows us the, the distinctives of a wisdom from above versus a wisdom from below. And one of the great challenges is when we allow for the two of them to coexist within one's heart. And that's what happened to Solomon in your Older Testament. He started off by pursuing a wisdom from above with God when he sought wisdom for the way in which he would govern the nation of Israel. But over the course of events in his life, there was a pilgrimage away from the wisdom from above, and he began to increasingly embrace a wisdom from below. And the result was not a unified heart, but a divided heart as he allowed the two to coexist. And a divided heart internally leads to divided relationships externally. And that's where we're at now in today's study in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. You're going to want to loop the prior verses to what we're considering here, because now what James is going to do for you and me is to have us examine carefully the conditions of our hearts. Are we allowing for a wisdom from above to coexist with a wisdom from below? If so, it's going to lead to a divided heart. And where there's a divided heart, it's going to end up with divided relationships. So we begin reading now in verse 1. I'm going to take it down through verse 10 of the 14th, fourth chapter. And here now, James pens these words. What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hearts, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So we want to examine the quality of our relationships today, which means we're going to have to backtrack and examine the quality of our heart today, which means we're going to have to backtrack and figure out, am I pursuing a blended wisdom from above with a wisdom from below? Or do I have a singular pursuit that I'm pursuing the wisdom from above exclusively? to help me understand the wisdoms of this world from below. There we have it. So we look to our Lord now in prayer. And this affects parenting. 
as students approach closer and closer to the time period when they will be going back to school and they will have to process wisdom from above and wisdom from below issues. It affects the Supreme Court. It affects all things political, all things relational, all things personal. So, Father, what we need to do is to say, are we settling? Are we settling for simply a a coexistence? Permitting a divided heart? Intolerating then our relationships being divided as well? Or are we going to pursue that which is from above and allow it to redefine what it is that we decide on a daily basis and the choices we are confronted with? So we're dealing with ethics, we're dealing with theology, we are dealing with God and with our hearts. And we're asking now, Father, that you would warm these hearts and that you would engage these minds and that you would shape these wills. For once again, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. And we're praying these things again now in in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're looking for uh, the book on the Civil War and you're willing to work through 900 pages plus of it, James McPherson has penned the book Battle Cry of Freedom. And he made this astounding statement. The United States has usually prepared for its wars after getting into them. Never was this more true than in the Civil War. The country was less ready for what proved to be its biggest war than for any other war in its history. Why? Because it was prepared for a battle from without. It was not prepared for a battle from within. Now, what you and I have to do is to recognize that the evil one is wanting not merely that which is from without, but wants to seize control of that which is found from within. What we have to understand is that the heart is not a playground. The heart is a battleground. And when you and I, as we noticed last week, allow for the wisdom from above to coexist with the wisdom from below within our hearts, what we have allowed for is a settled compromise. And a settled compromise from within leads to divided loyalties from within, which will lead to divided relationships from without. So we're connecting the dots between last week and this week now, aren't we? And as we do so, what we're going to do is to explore three significant factors that have to do with relationships, and in particular, what we are exploring in these verses, the war from within, and try to better understand what it is that God wants to teach you, teach me, in relationship to him vertically and to others horizontally and to ourselves internally. Let's check it out. Now, the first factor is found in verse 1 down through verse 3, 
And we're going to phrase it like this, number one. I want you to note with me the various conflicts which believers will face. And we say believers at this point because James is writing to believers, in particular Jewish believers, Christian Jews, who would be steeped in their Old Testament and would know some of the stories of the Old that would make a connection to the experiences that they're having to address in the now. Check out verse 1. He poses a question. The Bible has a series not only of exclamation points and periods, but questions as well. And here now, a very intensive question is posed. What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? He's going to delve into the causes behind the effects of the conflicts that we experience relationally in the home, the workplace, among other believers, and certainly with unbelievers. The word quarrel here comes from a Greek word, polemoi, we get polemics. In other words, people find themselves in relationally polemical situations where they're continuously being confronted with alternative views and they're either proactively or reactively involved in this kind of verbal conflict, which is true in a culture such as ours today, isn't it? The next word here, fights, carries with it the idea of ongoing battles, skirmishes. When you least expect it, you're now dealing with another, another attack. And what he wants us to begin doing is to ask ourselves, what is the cause behind the effects? He has spotted the effects, quarrels. Another effect, causes. Behind this, he wants us to get to the heart of the matter, the matter of the heart. And so then he poses another question found in verse 1. And it's an interesting question, isn't it? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you. Circle that word passions found there in that verse. It comes from a Greek word, hedonai, where we get hedonism. In other words, what he is saying is that we are dealing in this world with the hedonisms of the hearts. The longings, the cravings, the desires... Yes, the addictions all have to do with what is being described here with this particular word that your hedonisms, he is saying, not to unbelievers, believers are at war among you. Notice the wording within you. In other words, the externals of life are impacted by the internals of life. And what we have to do is to look behind what is conflicted relationally and ask ourselves, is there something that is conflicted internally? Now, what James is saying here is that there is a hedonism of the heart that needs to be properly understood because desires are such that they seek to control the heart, more so than the heart control the desires. Now behind all this, then, is the fact that this is something that could come unexpectedly to the fairly new believer. 
He is excited. He's exhilarated of the fact she is as well that, that they are born again. They, have, they are new creation people. But the challenge is, in this fallen world, as new creation people, we are positioned before God, new in Christ. But our spiritual condition is not the same as our spiritual position. We still have the sin nature abiding within. And we can't be surprised then when we look at what's here and realize we are dealing with something that is found even within the Christian community. It was 1995. There were approximately 100,000 people that had come together to celebrate with the Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin in Kings of Israel Square. After singing the Song of Peace, Prime Minister Rabin placed the paper with the lyrics in his coat pocket. The assassin's bullet left the words drenched in blood and left a nation, a young nation, in shock and grief. Now, Rabin, a tough soldier and a general, survivor of three wars, a powerful advocate of peace, he, in fact, had won the Nobel Prize. The shock level of that young nation was such they could not believe what had just occurred because he had been assassinated not from a bullet from someone from without, but rather someone from within, a fellow Jew. Now what God wants you and wants me to do is to understand that even behind the political stands the personal, and within the personal stands the internal dynamics. And there is a hedonism of the heart that he is drawing out for us here that desires what we currently do not have. So what you and I do is to take spiritual inventory at this point. And we examine that heart that has the hedonistic tendencies in this fallen world. And we ask ourselves, what do we need to do to place ourselves under the sovereign lordship of the one who desires a unified heart, not a divided heart? C.S. Lewis, Screwtape Letters. Now, he's got the senior devil that's instructing his understudy, known as Wormwood. And in C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, whenever he talks about the enemy, the enemy is a reference to God, you see, because he's describing how the evil realm is viewing God. So the senior devil in Screwtape Letters says this to his understudy, Wormwood. Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times, or in ways, or in degrees, which he has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure 
to that in which it is least natural, listen to this, an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. That in itself helps us to understand the addictions of this world, which are matters, you see, of the heart. Because James now poses this significant question, is not this that your hedonisms, literally, are at war not merely among you, within you. And what he wants us to begin to evaluate very carefully as to whether or not we have a divided heart based upon hedonistic tendencies where we crave that which we can't have or do not have. So he gets to verse 2. There is a pathology involved here. And he's evaluating the cause behind the effects. He works from the out, inside outwardly and then adds, you desire and do not have. That has to do with uncontrolled desires so that you murder. And you say, but Gary, that seems extreme. When James was writing at the time in which the Romans were in charge of the empire, there was such a thing as zealots. There was a zealot movement in the Christian, within the Jewish circles. And the zealot movement found various ways to take down their enemy. Behind all of that, though, when you look very carefully at that second verse, you and I are informed of the first conflict, the first war, really, the whole issue of death itself found in the relationship of Cain and Abel. Now Cain knew, excuse me, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. In other words, she already was anticipating Messiah coming into this world and assumed that her firstborn was going to pave the way eventually for Messiah. Satan's going to counteract that attempt. And again she bore his brother Abel, and and now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. came natural to him. He was a worker of the ground. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offerings, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Mock this. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? The first question about anger in the Bible. And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And listen now. And track it back to James chapter 4. Its desire is for you. 
but you must rule over it. Do you rule over your desires? Or do your desires rule over you? Now that requires some ongoing intensive spiritual evaluation. That stands behind here what took place with the first religious war in all of history. Both offered sacrifices, you see, to God. One denied, the other accepted. The one who experienced denial from God took the life of the other who gained acceptance from God. And now we look at the relationship of even religious conflict globally, and we can see the connectedness of Genesis 4 to James 4 to what we are now observing on the news night after night after night. But he stays personal with it. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And so now the uncontrolled desires of the heart lead to a diminished quality of relationships from among us. Carl Sandburg wrote a lot about the Civil War, the bloody time that claimed more than a million, half a million, excuse me, from the land of the living. Leave it to a writer. One writer said that this was actually fought over a verb. For you see, before the war, this country was referred to in all treaties as, quote, the United States are, A-R-E, unquote. After the war, the new reference was the United States is, I-S, unquote. What he's saying was, it was a divided nation before. It was a united nation after. And now what you and I have to do is to ask, have I permitted an R instead of an is to function within my body? Is there a division of the heart? Or is there a unity of the heart here? that guides me and directs me in understanding all the more of what it is that God has called me to do and to be before him. Now you get to the second part of verse 2. And now what he says is, in essence, this. If you want to take a test spiritually as to the true spiritual condition of your heart, let's take a prayer test. So let's you and I now do that. At the end of verse 2, here it comes. At the end of verse 2, he states, You do not have because you do not ask. What I find, and maybe you find the same way, is that where there is a wisdom from above that's allowed to coexist with the wisdom from below, and both reside simultaneously, internally, within the heart. The result is that, is that I am not prompted to seek God. I might feel as though I've so compromised myself. Why try? The coexistence leads to compromise internally. You do not have because you do not ask. But now we ask, and why don't I ask? Is there a restraint that's being placed 
upon my heart and do the commingling of the above and the below. Here's the next one in verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. The word again here is your hedonisms. So let's say on one hand, I look at myself and I see there are areas where I just feel such restraint from appealing to God because I know I've got a compromised heart. There's a coexistence of the wisdom from above and the wisdom from below. But on the other hand, I try to break through that and I pursue God. But when I do pursue God in my prayer life, I pursue him based upon wrong passions, upon hedonisms that lead then to answers from God that are less than what I desire. Ziggy. It's a cartoon character. And from several years below, he's found standing, looking up, you see, on a mountain. And the sky's dark. There's just one cloud up there, but it's a threatening cloud. It's making a statement of more to come. And Ziggy says, quote, Have I been put on hold for the rest of my life? Question mark. Have you ever felt that way in relationship to God? The days turn into weeks, which turn into months, which turn into years. And you still have these desires, perhaps even uncontrolled desires. And the uncontrolled desires and the unfulfilled desires now are mingled together And when you and I examine our own prayer lives, we ask ourselves, is it because I do not ask? Or is it because I ask and do not receive because I ask wrongly to spend it upon my hedonisms, my passions, rather than God's passions? Because God is very passionate. So passionate he would send his son into the world to die for our sins. That's how passionate he is about you and about me. General Howard, Christian soldier, at the end of the leadership of General Grant, who became president of the United States, went to visit the president on his deathbed. And General Howard reminded Ulysses S. Grant of his great service And he told him that the country would always be in grateful remembrance. He had a way of unifying the nation, he was told. And then the muffled voice, the biographer tells us, interrupted him. And with an eagerness, a passion, he turned to General Howard, the one of whose piety he was as certain about as his courage. And he said, Howard, tell me more about prayer. So now I look at that twofold testing. You do not have because you do not ask. And I ask, but why don't I ask? You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. And where is it that I ask wrongly? To spend it on your passions. And so I ask myself, is there any divided sense of the sacred and the hedonistic that are competing internally? and as a result, are affecting my relationships externally. 
because the conflicts from without find their root pathologically in the conflicts, you see, from within. So now we look at that battleground of the soul. It's a battleground, not a playground. The culture of today views the heart as the playground and so emphasizes the hedonistic realm on the horizontal level. But as John Piper might put it, he speaks of a, of a Christian hedonism where we seek the pleasure from above, where we think vertically, not horizontally, and ask ourselves the tough questions, what is it within my heart, in my desires, and in my decisions that please God? Because the true pleasure-seeking believer is the one who seeks the pleasure of God, who, as C.S. Lewis pointed out, is the one who has instilled pleasure, as you even see in the Garden of Eden before the fall, where he made everything so incredibly attractive to the eye. Now, once you and I have grappled with this first of the factors, where we note, number one, the various conflicts which believers will face, then we move forward as we're addressing the issues of the culture today to the second one. Then note number two, the abundant grace which believers always need. In verse 4, he says, you adulterous people, in other words, you've broken covenant. Do you not know, and notice the tension here that believers experience, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And you say, now, Gary, can you help me with that? Is there an example in which somebody started out as friend with God, so to speak, and then began slowly but surely became friend of the world? Contrast in Genesis the relationship of Abram to Lot. Abram was obviously a mentor, a discipler of Lot. In Genesis chapter 13, there is now conflict. There's a conflict between Abram's people and Lot's people about land, and it's still happening in 2015, the land of Israel today, isn't it? Now, there are some words here that describe the slow migration of Lot further and further away from the wisdom from above toward the wisdom from below. In Genesis chapter 13, verse 10, you and I are told, and Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered. But that was the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. That is where we get the descriptions of homosexual acts. In verse 10 of chapter 13, Lot saw. In verse 11 of chapter 13, Lot chose. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. And Lot journeyed east. There is a slow but steady and certain movement away from the wisdom from above, embracing increasingly the wisdom from below. In verse 12 of Genesis 13, Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent now as far as Sodom. He saw he chose. He settled. 
And if you were to get to Genesis chapter 19, verse 1, you and I would be informed, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. Sitting at the gate of a city in that time period meant that you were part of the judicial system. You could say he was one of the supreme justices in the land. You see a slow but steady movement away from the wisdom from above to the wisdom from below. You will see that same migration in Solomon's experience where he sought from God at the beginning of his leadership a wisdom from above to lead Israel. But in the latter days, what we find is that he is embracing a wisdom from below. And as a result of a divided heart, we see divided worship. And he's worshiping other gods and trying simultaneously to worship the sovereign holy God. Now ask yourself, do I have within my circle of relationships... Anybody in the slow migration away from the wisdom from above, embracing increasingly the wisdom from below, it affects the decision-making process, and it might be a step-by-step movement further and further and further away until the voice and the wisdom from above is simply an echo of principles from the past rather than an ongoing instruction of the heart for the present. He shifts gears. He shifts gears. In verse 5. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? You've got a jealous God on your hands. He wants the wisdom from above to so shape your mind, your heart, and your soul that he has exclusive loyalty, exclusive rights, so that the wisdom from below is not allowed to coexist with the wisdom from above, and you can opt to decide for the wisdom from below one day and the wisdom from above the next day. But then you begin to wonder, why are my relationships in the condition that they are? There is this jealousy of the cross where God had an exclusive plan of redemption and he so jealously desires you that he set his only begotten son into this world to die in your place to save you from and I from our sins. So he is saying now to the believer who finds himself conflicted inwardly as well as outwardly. He, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Don't embrace the spirit of the age and allow for coexistence. When God wants exclusive rights internally as well as externally, or the thought processes, the values, the decisions of your life. Now we look at the quality of our relationships. We look from without. And we ask the cause and effect questions of what takes place from within. And then you take a deep breath. He's got a blessing for you. Verse 6. But he gives more grace. 
There was an artist who submitted a painting of Niagara Falls for an exhibition. He chose not to give it a title. He presented it to the gallery and gave them the opportunity to supply the caption. This was the title that was given. More to follow. Old Niagara Falls spilling over billions of gallons per year, thousands of years. It's more than met the needs of those below. It's a fit emblem of the flood of God's grace for your heart and mind. In other words, there is always more to follow. If you're pained about the past, if you're conflicted about the relationships of the present, and you can create a cause and effect in your own mindset as to how and why things are the way they are, he's got words of incredible encouragement to you and to me. There is always more to follow. For as the writer of the fourth gospel, John put it, quote, For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, unquote. Grace following grace. Grace heaped upon grace. Or as someone years ago penned it in one of the great hymns, He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more grace when the labors increase. To added afflictions, He addeth His mercy. To multiplied trials, He multiplied grace. I feel like you've got some multiplied trials on your hands this morning. Obstacles. Conflicted relationships. Tensions with your past. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth. Again. And even when we find ourselves conflicted in our relationship with God, you go to that cross. You bring your sins and your burdens there. And he giveth, and he giveth, and he giveth again. This is the abundant grace, not a minimalistic grace that we always need. Got room in your bucket for that? There's a third factor here. It's powerful. Third factor. That in the midst of this whole matter of the war within, note thoroughly the spiritual safeguards which believers must establish. In verses 7 through 10, It's almost as if James is now hitting us with bullet point after bullet point after bullet point. They are succinct statements to protect the heart, 
Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. There's one. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Here's another. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Keep applying which of these really relates to your, your 2015 condition at this moment. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. He'll exalt you. Usually at this time of the year, I, in prior years, get postcards of people traveling. And they've tried to condense their experiences in a few sentences. I believe texting has replaced postcards. Increasingly, what I find are fewer and fewer postcards and more and more texts coming my way. Succinct statements about life experiences. It's almost as if James now is texting you and me. And in rapid-fire succession, he's delivering succinct statements with regard to how you and I go about protecting the borders of the heart. And if you and I were to make a connection between all these various statements, we would find that they are proactive as well as reactive. For you football fans, there's both offense and defense. Put it another way, these statements both insulate as well as isolate. Put it another way, there's a balance between the outward and the inward. Pull all this together then, and what he's saying is, I'm giving you succinct statements. Choose which ones at this moment you best need to start applying, but embrace them all. And as you do so, think with me what took place in an interview in recent days that Greta Van Susteren was conducting with an FBI agent. They were walking along the border, and they were discussing how do you secure the border. And the FBI agent turned to Greta Van Susteren and said, so many of the people in America are looking at the battles and the conflicts from without. He said, my concern right now is the battles and the conflicts from within. Because what I see, he said, is a proliferation, an expansion of terrorist cells from within. And if we so cast our gaze on that which is from without, we will underestimate, quote, unquote, the war from within. And when I heard that, I heard James speaking, not politically, not nationalistically. No, he was talking internally because he knows that the war from within produces a war from without. And the quality of our relationships gives evidence to the quality of the heart before God. First, McPherson put it, the United States has usually prepared for its wars after getting into them. Never was this more true than the Civil War. The country was less ready for what proved to be its biggest war. Why? Because it was prepared for a battle from without. It was not prepared for a battle from within.
So the antidote to all of this is this. Ask yourself, am I exclusively devoted to the wisdom from above? Or do I create a pluralistic philosophy of the heart that combines a wisdom from above with a wisdom from below, and then I wonder, and why are not things peaceful? A singular heart devoted to God is mocked by peace. A divided heart in relationship to God is mocked by conflict. These are the issues of the hour. These are the issues of the heart. These are the issues of this world. We need Jesus. Let's stand together. And so, Father, we take the current events, we take the histories, we take the pathologies, we try to understand cause and effect relationships. We stay centered upon the cross of Jesus Christ where you jealously secure your people through the shed blood of the second member of the Trinity. But James was writing to believers. He's warning us there will be battles. What we have to do is to look at the outside and not settle for that being the sum total of reality but to start first with the inside and ask if there is exclusive allegiance to our Lord. To shy away from the pilgrimages of a lot of the Old Testament or Solomon. And instead, Father, stay loyal from beginning to end to the one who came to die for our sins. So, Father, I pray if any of us find ourselves entering into this worship service with a divided heart, we will leave now with a unified heart devoted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ from beginning to end. And for this, we'll give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.